Hear the word of the Lord, uh, the word upon which our teaching is based this morning is part of the prologue of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Do you know what this morning is as we begin the first Sunday of Advent? We should turn to our neighbors. Maybe I'd have you do this. I don't know. Maybe this would wait. Maybe this is better than coffee if I have you do this. You should turn to your neighbor and wish them Happy New Year. There you go. Okay, some of you are listening. Some of you thought he's just joking around. Now, now before you think I'm on, now some of you are going, okay, I'm going to wish my neighbor Happy New Year, then let's join and pray for Jeff because he's off his rocker here a little bit. Some of you are thinking he's forgotten the calendar, and I have news for you. No, I have not. Because do you know what today is? Today is the January 1st of the Christian year. It is the beginning of the Christian year in the liturgical calendar that begins with the first Sunday of Advent. Listen to how one PCA pastor put uh, what the Christian year, the Christian calendar, if you would, is all about. He says, the Christian year, or as it's commonly known, the liturgical calendar, is a communal pattern that forms us year after year to be a people of the story of our faith. Human beings are creatures profoundly and fundamentally shaped by stories. Our conviction is that each of our lives will always be following someone's calendar and someone's story. It is just a question of which calendar and which story and what kind of narrative it is telling. I want you to think about it. Let me illustrate it this way. We do this all the time in our country, do we not? We follow a calendar and a story. Our new year is January 1st. We usually do what? Or at least in my household, we watch college football. We enjoy family. We get together. If you think about it, we celebrate the 4th of July, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving. All of these things, those are not just points on a calendar. They're telling a story, are they not? They're telling the part of our national story. Now, the Christian year is no different. It's telling a different, it is actually telling the story that ought to be, and I'm going to challenge us this morning to make this the story of our lives. Above our national story, above our family story, above any other story, it is the story of the gospel, the story of our Christian faith. Because if you think about it, the Christian year begins with Advent, that time of waiting and longing and in anticipation. That's why there's an appropriateness that we sing for God to ransom captive Israel who waits in lonely exile here. This all leads up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And from our perspective, we're kind of, and I'll share a little bit more about this in a second, we're kind of in between. We're in a perpetual Advent because we look back on the first coming of Jesus and we look forward in lonely exile, 
How did the Bible end? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We are in Advent anticipating the second coming of Jesus. The Christian year after the birth of Jesus at Christmas follows what's known as Epiphany, which recounts the story of Jesus' early life and ministry, goes through his teachings. We then go through Lent through Good Friday, which is the time following Jesus' final days leading up to the cross, leading to the Easter Sunday with the resurrection and Ascension Day and Pentecost the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church to indwell, fill, and empower Christian people to live cross-centered, sacrificial, loving lives of loving God and loving neighbor. That's the story of the gospel. That's the Christian narrative that is to form and shape our hearts and our lives. So this morning is the beginning of the Christian year, the first Sunday of Advent, and what we're going to be doing is going through John's prologue. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And if we look at what Advent is all about, I'm reading a book right now currently by an author by the name of Fleming Rutledge, and she writes, Advent is not for the faint of heart. It is not for sissies. To grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between, because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming, in glory, to judge the living and the dead, and to put everything right. In the time between, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is our life, appears We will appear with him in glory, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. Advent then contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. It is in that Advent tension that the church lives its life. Here's the question. I always like to give you an application question at the beginning of each sermon. In that tension, how do we live our lives? How do we live in that dynamic tension of the now where the kingdom is broken in, but the not yet? There's a passage of scripture that I believe is a tremendous Advent passage, although we don't usually read it as an Advent passage. It's often overlooked. It comes from Peter's second letter. And Peter is responding, just to give us some of the context of this, he's responding to a people who are becoming disillusioned, waiting for the second coming of the Lord. They're waiting and waiting and waiting, going, will he come? When will he come? Is he coming? And Peter's writing to both challenge and encourage them. And towards the end of his second letter, he writes in chapter 3, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Sounds like our application question, right? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening 
the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What sort of people ought we to be? Did you catch this? It sounds like a paradox. Are you thinking to yourself, not only is Jeff off his rocker, but Peter, what are you smoking here a little bit? Waiting and hastening. Don't they sound a little bit opposite? We get waiting. We don't always like it. But hastening. Do you know we hasten the day of the Lord every time we pray the Lord's Prayer and we're praying, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are in a sense, and this is God's view, we are in a sense pulling heaven down to earth. We are to be a people utterly controlled by and committed to the story and the narrative of God, which we're going to look at in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, because it's the story of this very loaded, pregnant term that John introduces us to, known as the Logos, the Word. And we're going to learn two things about the Word of the Logos this morning. We're going to learn about the incredible claim, or I should say claims, of the Logos, and then we're going to look at the power of the Logos. Okay? Simple outline. The claims and the power. Look with me at verse 1. And I want you to know, does this sound familiar a little bit? Like, did you hear our friend Bill read? It sounded a little bit... Similar a few moments ago, that was purposeful, both by the Holy Spirit as he authored this and me as I chose this for this morning. Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three times that concept, that loaded term word is used, and that word is the Greek word logos. And see, immediately we are confronted with an incredible claim. We are told that this thing called the Logos is, number one, eternal, because it says in the beginning. In other words, he is uncreated. He's the maker of all things. And notice also John's literary technique, recalling the creation narrative of Genesis 1. In other words, this Logos is involved, this is what we're anticipating for, this is what we're waiting for and hastening. Nothing less than, nothing short of a new creation. John wants us very purposely and intentionally to recall the original creation. Now, to the original hearers of John's gospel, this term would have a very distinct meaning because the word logos, what it means was your reason for being, your purpose in life, what you were built for, your reason for life. And of course, what John is, this is the incredible claim, he is saying, he is it. He's the story. Jesus is the logos. Because he says this Logos is not some vague, abstract thing, because later, and we'll preach on this in a few weeks, the Logos actually becomes flesh and tabernacles, dwells, lives among us. So in other words, the Logos is not some vague, abstract concept. The Logos is personal and real and becomes flesh and blood and knowable and tangible to us. And the claim for this here is that people find their logos, their meaning, by putting their story, the story of your life, into that larger story, that larger 
narrative. You find life. In other words, you find meaning and you find significance and you find purpose by putting your story into his story. Now, this is intensely practical. I think I've shared this illustration with you before because it was years ago I read a book by a professor from Columbia University. His name is Andrew Del Banco. It's called The Real American Dream. And listen to what Professor Del Banco wrote. He says, I use the word culture to mean the stories by which we try to hold back the melancholy suspicion that we live in a world without meaning. Now listen to what he's saying, because he's capturing something, and it challenges us, because in one sense, you've got to look into your heart and examine your heart here a little bit. What he's saying is that we are all driven by a kind of a communal fear. He calls it the melancholy suspicion. He says the fear, the fear that leads us to say, I have to work like crazy, provide security, not just be responsible, but over the top. He says, that fear is a melancholy suspicion that we live in a world without meaning. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that the deepest fear of the human heart, the deepest fear of the human being, is that life is pointless. Life is meaningless. And of course, John's point is, no, it's not. There is only one story that doesn't just give you good information, doesn't just inspire you, doesn't just give you good feelings, but actually is the true, as Leslie Newbigin wrote, the true story of the whole world. That's quite a claim. And there's something to be learned in there for us about how we proclaim the gospel. If we're proclaiming the gospel as just kind of one more consumer choice among many, we're not faithfully witnessing to the gospel. Because the gospel, this is what the Logos means. This is the claim of the Logos. That it is the true story of the whole world. That Jesus' story is the preeminent story. Which brings us to verses 3 and 4. John writes, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, look at this claim. All things were made through him. All things. Comprehensive. Nothing was made without him. And then in him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, why is that? It's because he created us. He designed us. He built us. He's our architect. He's our builder. Which means we find meaning and happiness and purpose and significance. There's a point in living only through him. Not in work. Not in family, not in beauty, not in health, not in possessions, not in our looks, not in social media, not in how many likes we get on a certain post. Meaning is only through him. And again, just to be very practical, this would have had a very specific and relevant meaning at the time of John's writing. Because at the time John was writing, and he wrote his gospel towards the end, it was probably the last of the four gospels, and he wrote it towards the end of the first century. Most scholars believe it was somewhere around the last decade of the first century, A.D. 90, something like that. And there was substantial debate about this. There was considerable, considerable doubt and despair, even as there was a such thing as a logos. Sometimes we read in the pages of the New Testament about various schools of thought, various schools of philosophy. You recall reading people like the Stoics 
and the Epicureans. They all put forth their views, but nothing quite worked. So by the time John wrote, the dominant opinion was that there was no logos, or at least no ultimate logos, no ultimate point to living, no real purpose or meaning in life, so you might as well go out and live any way you want. Totally live for yourself. The point is eat, drink, and be merry. Find your own logos. Do what maximizes your own pleasure, yes, and minimizes the pain of others, but do your own thing. Make your own life work. Now, let me see if you're paying attention. Does that sound familiar in terms of a description of a culture? Does that sound a little bit like the culture we live in? That basically says there is no ultimate logos. All religions are equal. All ways are equal. It doesn't matter which way there is to God or to your higher power or to whatever. All that matters is that you're happy and that you don't hurt other people. Friends, that is not the claim of John chapter 1. That is not the claim of Jesus Christ. That is not the claim of the Bible. And friends, we need to recover that claim. Not only in our lives, but in our gospel proclamation. The gospel that we preach, the gospel that we teach, the gospel that we embody in our lives cannot be presented and cannot be carried forth as one option, one equal option among any others. So that when people hear us talk, they go, hmm, that, that sounds good for you. And maybe I'll consider that, I'll add that to my smorgasbord of life. You know, I'll have a quart, quarter pound of this and a half a pound of this like we're at a deli line. Friends, that is not the Logos, and that is not Christianity. That is not a faithful witness. We need something better. That's what we anticipate and wait for. We need something else. This brings us to our next point. We need the power of the Logos. Look with me again at verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 4 makes the claim, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, I want you to notice a contrast here, and a contrast that is such a significant theme in John's writings. Part of me wishes we could go through the entirety of John's gospel again, but we did that once before, so I'm not planning on doing that again. But this theme of light and darkness is so prevalent in John's writing. And as one commentator put it, he says, the entry of the Logos into the world is described as light shining in darkness. Friends, that's the context in which we live. That's the context of the now and the not yet. The light has entered the world and in a context of death and decay, of disorder and chaos. But look at the promise. Look at the power of the Logos. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, remember, again, I want you to notice the parallels with Genesis, the passage that Bill read a few moments ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what was the context of that original creation? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
Now, we have to understand in kind of that original thought world, and this is the thought world that John is now bringing into his writing. In that original thought world, creation was the work of God overcoming the darkness, and darkness in the Bible is always thought of as disorder, turmoil, ultimate chaos. So creation, light shining in the darkness, is order being brought out of chaos. That was original creation. And then, of course, sin entered the world. And once again, the world became a place of darkness, this time spiritual darkness. So now when the ultimate light enters the world, he enters into a realm dominated by spiritual darkness. And again, as one commentator put it, the darkness is hostile. There is enmity. And when verse 5 says the light shines in this hostile environment, but the darkness cannot overcome it, that verb used here, overcome, according to this commentator, has a double significance, has a double meaning. One meaning is it means to grasp with the mind or to comprehend. The other, and I want you to visualize this, is to grasp with the hand and so to overcome or destroy. John typically will use both ideas in his writings, but here the second meaning, according to this commentator, seems foremost here. What John is suggesting is that the darkness cannot seize or grasp or lay hold of or control or overcome the word. The theme gives us some hint of the struggle between light and darkness that will sound throughout the gospel. The opposition to Jesus will be continual and will be severe. The world that the Logos enters and God loves is a place of remarkable unbelief. Those opposed to him will try to defeat his word. But hear this, this is the power of the word. They will fail. And how will they fail? Listen to how Matthew describes the cross of Jesus. It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And friends, again, remember the imagery. It doesn't just mean the sun went down and some sort of you know, phenomenon has happened. It means Jesus, in a sense, this is the metaphor and the imagery Matthew wants us to recall. Jesus is, in, in a sense, experiencing a sense of disorder and uncreation in order to birth and bring about a new world and a new creation. This is what we're longing for, anticipating and hoping for, and as we will see in a moment, ourselves, as we are engrafted and united to the light of the world, become lights shining in the darkness. See, the darkness did everything in its power to destroy the Logos, but it could not overcome the word. That is the power of the Logos. And again, as Fleming Rutledge in her book on Advent reminds us, God submitted himself to the very worst that human sin could do. As our representative, he comes under his own judgment. And on the third day, he was raised victorious over evil and death. This really happened. No one made it up. Friends, how did the Logos overcome the darkness? Through death. Ultimate sacrifice. Ultimate weakness. Ultimate love. 
the Logos himself in the second person of the Trinity, submitted to his very own judgment, submitted to the powers of darkness himself in order for light to win. Throughout John's gospel, he will call us, he will refer to himself and make the claim he is the light of the world. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he call his disciples? The salt of the earth and the light of the world. As we will see next week when we look at John the Baptist, not because we are the ultimate light, we bear witness to the light, but we are also connected to the light. This weekend, we heard about the death of our 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush. And in his 1998 acceptance speech for president at the Republican National Convention, he said very famously, he said, we are a nation of communities, of thousands and tens of thousands of ethnic, religious, social, business, labor union, neighborhood, regional, and other organizations, all of them varied, voluntary, and unique. He said, this is America. A brilliant diversity spread like stars, like a thousand points of light in a broad and peaceful sky. President Bush was quite a statement. You may or may not agree with all his politics, and I'm certainly not standing up here to speak about politics. That's not the point at all. But I want you to think about something. He said there are thousands and tens of thousands points of light. Now, Jesus said he was the light of the world. And in the covenant promise to Abraham, when God called Abraham outside to fulfill, to give him assurance, to help his doubts that he was having about the faithfulness of God in his covenant, he said what? He says, I want you to look at the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. These points of light, he said, they will be more than numbers can even count. And Jesus, when he died, was raised to death, was ascended into heaven. What did he do? He poured out his spirit to indwell his body, to leave behind what? See, he's the light of the world, and what has he left behind? He has left behind his church to be light in darkness. And friends, do you understand? Do we believe we ought to be the most confident people in the world? Because what is the power of the Logos? The light, ultimately Jesus, but us in Jesus, connected to Jesus. Heaven's not far off. He's not in some faraway place where we have to call out and go, do you hear us? Do you believe the Holy Spirit is real, present, and in us, and in this very room, right this very second? And he will be with you in your neighborhood. He will be with you in work. He will be with you in family. What does that make you? That makes you light shining in the darkness. And what is the promise? The darkness will not overcome it. Maybe we need to start shining, as Paul wrote, like stars. We are to shine our light in the darkness. And not by, doesn't mean be amazing people. It means be ordinary people. Be human people. Every time we do acts of kindness in the name of Jesus. Every time we proclaim the gospel in the name of Jesus. Every time we lay our preference down lay our agenda down for the sake of someone else in the name of Jesus. Every time we suffer and hurt and experience pain in the name of Jesus, we're shining. God has not given up on the world he loves. He's left light 
in the darkness, and that light is his church. That ought to make us love the church all the more. We are to shine our light in the darkness to proclaim and embody this message, the message of the Logos, the gospel, that is truly the best news in the world, that Jesus is Lord. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is the true story of the whole world. And so now, Father, as we come, we really only come because you've come to us. And you come to us now in this sacrament. You invite us to come, to eat and drink of you. You feed us. And we pray that we would receive you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.